Welcome to Lions Radio Network, where the show takes you on a roaring adventure with entertaining and stimulating topics focusing on entertainment, sports, business, world news, along with many other topics. Whatever your interests are, you will find them right here on Lions Radio Network. Top 40 country radio recording artist D.A. Cole is firing things up on the Lions Radio Network with this provocative approach to talk radio. Hot topics, interesting guests, and music will entice listeners to call in and join the conversation on Turning Up the Heat. Hi, and welcome to Turning Up the Heat. I'm D.A. Cole, along with my trusty producer, Engineer and co-host, Mr. Brian Gard. Hello, DA. Happy Wednesday to you this evening, this fine evening. It is a fine evening, and what a show we've got for you tonight. Our guest is a former NFL defensive end, enjoying a fine career with the Bengals, Chiefs, and the Raiders. He's currently a fitness expert and corporate motivational speaker, but he's also had a successful career as an actor, and you may just remember him as Swede Johansson from the film Heartbreak Ridge, The Swede. We're happy to have him here with us tonight. Please welcome Pete Koch. Hey, Pete. Yeah, hey, good to be with you. I love that introduction. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. We're so happy to have you, Pete. Um, I've been uh, doing some... Uh, a little bit of you know background research on uh, some things you have going on in addition to uh, things that you've had in your previous uh, career endeavors, and um, you've done uh, quite a few things, obviously, and um, most probably noticeable, n- notable um, are your years in the NFL and your acting career. But I know you've got something special going on right now with uh, motivational um, speaking and, and regarding uh, involving fitness and making people's life better 30 seconds at a time, as your uh, Facebook posts uh, state and show. So um, I guess just you know, kind of start off by giving us a little bit of background. I know you're from New Hyde Park, Long Island. I'm also from Long Island. We also we, we spoke a little bit about that. We touched on that briefly. But uh, give us a little background um, Peacock, the early years. Early years, growing up on Long Island, my dad was a New York City cop. Yeah, how about that? Uh, I'm, I'm the youngest of four, so my dad was quite a bit older, fought in World War II, and and uh, raised us on Long Island, uh, which was, you know, kind of the getaway for cops that lived in New York City. This was a chance to raise your family in a Nassau County environment, a little bit uh, quieter, I suppose. And I loved it. I think it was a great place for me to, for, to grow up. And from there, I was... Uh, played at New Hyde Park Memorial High School, which was back then, and this was in the late 70s, and, and I graduated in 1980, and that was uh, that, that high school was a powerhouse in, in football, and I benefited greatly from uh, the head coaches. They kind of had like uh, dual head coaches, uh, Angelo Giuliano and uh, John John Kalo. John Kalo, my – so he was – you were so lucky at that moment in time. My high school um, head coach was Roger Staubach's center at navy all right how about that <laughs> that's crazy not, not, i think I learned a few things uh navy and, and playing with roger Staubach. so it was a formative time and from there i went to the university of maryland played football there graduated the same year 1984 as boomer sison uh you know an isolate product and um a bunch of good long island guys on that football uh, team there at university of maryland so that was good times there and then i banged around the nfl as you said for six seasons and uh 
and you know, here I am. I don't want to bore people with the history, but uh, Long Island and, and coming from New York, that was that was. Uh, I think I was fortunate. That was a good place for me to grow up. No, that's cool. Uh, hey, Pete, this is Brian Gard, uh, DA's co-host. Uh, I kind of joke with my wife uh, living in Manhattan now. Uh, I got three young boys, uh, three, two three-year-olds and a six-year-old, and I'm trying to figure out where the, where the hell they're going to be playing football. So uh, maybe uh, we can, <laughs> I'm going to have to take the family out to Hyde Park, for crying out loud, because uh, I don't think there's too many, uh, too many uh, Pop Warner or anything like that going on in Manhattan. Uh, let me just add something before we go any further. Brian, uh, my co-host here, is a Cleveland Browns diehard fan. Uh, <laughs> you probably played a couple of games against the Browns, Pete. Um, and uh, Brian's a big Browns fan. So, um, You know, I, I also grew up in Long Island, and, um, and it's interesting you said your father was a New York City police officer. And, and I can tell you probably – you know, every other, you know, it was a blue collar. I grew up in Massapequa, blue collar neighborhood, probably much the same as New Hyde Park. We played kickball in the street, flashlight tag at night. Uh, You know, everybody on my block was either an electrician, a cop, a plumber, you know, just the the houses were close to each other. You knew what was going on in your, in your neighbors, (laughs) you know, you could hear them yelling at the kids. And I grew up, you know, you know, the same time I graduated a half Hollow Hills East in 1981, which was also, um, uh, Division one, you know, good, good school. Uh, and, uh, speaking of Boomer size and he went to East Islip and, uh, we played mm-hmm. it or what was it? West Islip, uh, East, East Islip. We played them. We was East, and, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and he was, the funny thing about it is, uh, he was, a, he was two years ahead of me or a year ahead of me, I think. So I didn't, I never was on the same field as him, but I remember, you know, guys that I played with and, 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 you know, that played against him said he was six, five in high school. So, so he was so much bigger than all the other kids as a quarterback. He had just he was, had such a huge advantage. It almost was like a grown man playing with kids, and um, uh, just you know that's at, when you when you're at that level in high school, obviously uh, you're you're highly touted and recognized to make it to the next level because the difference between and you 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 could probably you know explain this better the difference between the high school level and the college level is is huge, but it may be even bigger between the college level and then the next level, which is the NFL. Would you say that's true or? I I would say the levels uh, work sort of this way to your point. It's a, it's an, it's it's just an abject size speed thing. And it's also, you know, going from the high school level, like kids, the kids that sign up for the high school football team, it's like, uh, at least it was in my high school. If you were able-bodied and can pass the physical and thought you might want to play contact <laughs> football, come on out. You made the varsity. <laughs> Congratulations. Yes. Hey, yeah, the, the coach said, he got, he had, you have big legs. You want to play football. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. True, really. So, uh, the, yeah, so you go there, and then the, the w- with my high school experience, it was, it, it was the coaches were willing to – mold you if you if you had the right attitude just the attitude that you're willing to be out here they were willing to mold you into being uh not only a better athlete and 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 somewhat of a football player regardless of the you know the genetic uh pool that you were born with they were willing to shape you into being a rugged individual that was resilient that was focused that was able to focus be determined and accomplish a goal, no matter how difficult it was. So you came away with a skill set, I mean, a truly useful, 
skill set for the rest of your life. And very few of those guys on the team. My uh, the, my the, my senior year, we I went to Maryland, and one other guy went to. Uh, uh, man, I think he played football at Ithaca. I mean, oh, and, and we had one like a division a division two school or something, yeah. right? Yeah, that was the only guy that played like Division One, right? So, so very few people actually. Um, uh, I'm sorry, I got distracted there for a second. I only so, so very few people were able to sort of you know monetize it, I guess you'd say, and and play Division or get a get an athletic scholarship out of it. But you got a whole lot of skill out of it. Then you get to the the, the Division One level. Very few people are going to play in the NFL if they don't play Division One football, right? And uh, sure. Then you're now you're now you're in an entirely different circumstance. You're entirely you're 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 playing with a group of guys that all got pretty good genes, got the height and the speed, and got the I mean, pretty much got the had the will to be there and, and uh, to compete. Um, that's when it gets really kind of fun. From there, you're steel sharp and steel, and you're going to see if you can move your position within the, the pantheon of being a, a really high-level football player, if you can push that. First, you, pre- you know, break into the starting lineup, and then, it's, then you see how well, you, uh, how well things respond when you compete at, you know, in my case, playing in the ACC at the time. Maryland was in the right. ACC. Playing against these guys down the road in North Carolina and playing against the guys in Clemson, South Carolina. Oh, yeah. See how things go against guys at that level, you know, kids – playing at the highest level in their particular state, in their particular culture, which is different in South Carolina. So that was quite interesting. And, and the things, you know, I didn't start until my senior year at Maryland. So um, I had a chance. It was frustrating for me, but I just, I just, you know, towed the line. I was the best practice player I could be. I started two games my junior year by default as uh, guys got injured. And then, uh, but I, but things went, Things went pretty well for me my senior year, and um, look, I was so dang hungry to compete at that point. And uh, you know, it kind of goes from there. Then you get to the NFL, and you're like, "Huh, I'm all the way back at the beginning again. Let me see if I can, you know, how well I can compete against the best of the best that made it to this point." So, did you when when you when you got uh, into the National Football League, did you wind up? Uh, you know, were, were you a special teams contributor that evolved into, uh, you know, spot starter starter, or were you kind of thrown in to the wolves uh, out of the gate? I mean, you know, you know how kind of like when you say start back over again, it's kind of like you know, depending on your draft status and um, you know, some probably some other politicking uh, going on, whatever's going on in the front office, all that kind of stuff. Um, just kind of talk a little bit about like how you know, your, your game transitioned or your, you know, and your, and your willingness and wantingness to compete transition from, you know, going from Maryland into, into the literally the highest level of uh, competitive football that you could play. This is a great question. And this is really complex and it's unique to every single guy that actually makes an NFL team. And of all the, by the way, all the guys, of all the guys that go into an NFL training camp, half of them, will never make an NFL team and they are, you know, they're not NFL alumni. They're guys that gave it a shot, but of all the guys that make it into an NFL, then you got, you know, then once you get into the NFL, the average career is about three years. 
So all kinds of things happen in the interim, and it starts with how you got into the training. I'll try to make a long, complex story short because I'm passionate about this, and I've recanted this. My story is this unique, uh, in some respects more, uh, more unique, more, um, I think, dramatic than most that, put, that went into an NFL training camp. Reason being this, I, I was the 16th player in the, picked in the first round of the 1984 draft, 16th player and I had nothing to do with it really all I did was play as hard as I could in college and then I did um, when prepared for the combine and competed in the combine and they tally some numbers there and there's some you can factor that in but but I I had I didn't make any selection and all I did was answer the phone the draft was on ESPN. I lived on campus at Maryland. In 1984, if you can believe this, Maryland didn't even, they were, they, they were a non-cable campus. We had no cable TV. So I had to wait, I wait by the phone. It's like, the, it's like the dark ages, right? But that's just the way it went <laughs> at that time. <laughs> I sat in a dorm room with, with Ron Salt and, and Boomer, and we sat there and waited for a phone call. And I was drafted by the Cincinnati Bengals, who uh, make, I'm, again, it's, it's a long, but make the long story short is that the, 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 there was no way that Bengals were going to draft me. I was told this by their defensive line coach uh, because, uh, because the Bengals had the number one pick in the draft in 1984, number one. And then they didn't have a, another pick until uh, late in the second round. And I was projected to go someplace between the middle and the end of the first round, or maybe the second round. So, again, the Bengals had the very first pick. The day, I believe it was the morning of the draft, the Bengals traded number one overall pick in a complicated three-way trade. They traded away that pick. The New England Patriots got the pick, and they selected Irving Fryer, the receiver out of Nebraska. Yeah, sure. The Bengals ended up with three picks, 11, 16, and a 24, I think. 11, 16, and 24, I think so. I was picked at 16. And they, in reality, at that time, the Bengals had zero need for a defensive end. No, no need. They had two superb defensive ends, Eddie Edwards and Ross Browner, who both went to the Pro Bowl. Oh, yeah, Why Ross Browner, first me? team all in there. Yeah, I'm... yeah, he was great at Ross Notre Dame. Browner, and, uh, Eddie great. Edwards was probably, honestly, better. And, and Eddie Edwards was a great guy. He went to University of Miami. He went to three uh-huh. or four. I remember um, both. Yep. The Pro Bowls. Yeah, and they had no need for me. I went and I learned how to play some of the position by with these guys, but there was no way I was gonna out of the gate coming from a very different defense. I played in a four point stance and a wide tackle six. It's complicated for for the, the to, for some 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 players are immediately ready to go when they come out of a, a certain college system into a pro system. I was the opposite. I was the guy that needed to be to, to experience. A big, big dramatic change in how the game was played because I came out of a very different defense. I don't mean to get drilled down into the weeds, but it's complicated. No, but but, but, but is that, that defense? Is that not the that four point stance? Is that not the Raiders' defense? It is the Raiders' defense, is it not? No, no. Oh, it's no. not. I thought that was the Raiders' defense six. as well. Oh no, no, the, no. Okay. So there, there's a three, four, and a four, three. That's that's just your alignment. But we played in a four point stance. And it's a very old-fashioned defense that nobody played. Well, Maryland was the last team to play it in college, and we, 
it's uh, it's for the your your, pe- your people out there that are like defensive historians. You took a, it was I played a five technique and we used a read step and Google it. I mean it's crazy. Um, except right. that was what we did. It was it was a mistake to that that Maryland made in my judgment to stay in that defense as long as they did. But that's a that's a whole other story. So I got drafted by a team that should have known that I needed a year or two to develop. And they didn't want. They were already paying Ross Browner and Eddie Edwards. Uh, they were very fine players, really good guys, and paying them a lot of money. Then they brought me in, and I didn't play a lick. I did not play at all. And they cut me in training camp the second year. There was no way. Oh my God. And, and uh, they, they weren't prepared. They weren't prepared for the draft. They made a trade. God knows why. Somebody asked Mike Brown. His dad, Paul Brown, was alive during that time, and they picked me. The first guy they picked, and I'm telling you, the first guy they picked with their 11th pick was, was I know I'm getting into the deep. I'm almost done with the story. Was was Ricky Hunley? Ricky Hunley was the three-time first-team All-American linebacker out of Arizona. Ricky and Ricky Hunley was picked with the 11th pick. They never signed him. Eight games into oh, wow. the season, they traded the rights to him to the uh, Denver Broncos, and he had a very fine career with the Broncos. And then later on circle back i ended up playing with him as teammates with him with the raiders six years okay. later and i do remember with the broncos pick, yeah it was the 22nd pick or the 24th pick they picked brian blados a tackle out of north carolina who had a nice career played i don't mm-hmm. know several years with the bengals um but that's what they did with their picks but there was me it was a disastrous pick i needed i needed development i needed a strong coach i needed a strong coach that really understood the system and that would be able to work with me to develop the guy that was coaching the defensive line in cincinnati had never coached an nfl game in his life he was a rookie nfl coach he came from college he's exactly the wrong coach for a guy that needed a really strong coach right (laughs) it was a disaster for me and uh, it was it was it was the worst possible place I could have been picked, and uh, it was it was uh, uh, it was a very very difficult you know uh, point in time for me. Uh, it was a very small market. It was a very the Bengals had very poor facilities, and it was it was uh, not fun for right. me. Uh, so how did you hey, like living in uh, <laughs> how you like living in Cincinnati? I didn't like it, you know, but I thought the people were absolutely outstanding. But it, it's, uh, you know, I, I can speak for, for most every single guy that's going to be drafted. You'd prefer to be in a larger market with larger opportunities for most guys. You've got some small-town guys, granted. But most guys like me would rather prefer to be in a, a, a larger market with, with more opportunity um, outside uh, what's going on in the practice field. And also, and also, um, also a and by the way, so at that time the the Bengals were the third small only only the Buffalo Bills and Green Bay Packers were are smaller market in the NFL and the Cincinnati Bengals. Right? So it was a small market, and it had a brand new coaching staff that was Sam Weish, and uh, who hired a defensive line coach that was a rookie, and it was just a just a difficult situation. Yeah, but that's so, the way it goes. And, and, but 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 I ended up getting uh, picked up uh, picked up as uh, signed as an unre- as a uh, I'm sorry, I was claimed on the waiver wire after, during training camp my second season, and by the Kansas City Chiefs. Now they were also a very they're all they're, they're also a small market team, but they had a very very experienced defensive line group. They knew what they wanted from me. They realized I needed a chance to develop a little bit more, and I fit perfectly 
within that organization. And two years later, I was starting. So so the the players, you know, want to, you know, and, and players like me, not only would you preferably, you know, you don't have a choice and this is difficult, but you'd preferably like to be in a larger market. And secondly, you'd like to be in a market, you know, where, I mean, if the, if the weather is better, it's good too. Sure. Um, and the weather's, the weather's not very good in Cincinnati. And it was, and for a guy like me that sort of suffered with a little seasonal affective disorder, it, it was, it was difficult. It was difficult. I fought depression there. Yeah. The, so uh, the first statement I'll make is, isn't it amazing how the stars align? Uh, you've obviously got a good karmatic uh, or karmic uh, kind of uh, 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 situation going on for, you know, obviously you've done some good things right in, in either previous lives or, or maybe even in this one to, to finally kind of landed in a place where, uh, you know, it, it worked out a lot better. And quite frankly, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that's, and that's great to hear. And that's actually a, a great, a great story. Um, and the other, the other thing that I was just thinking as you were speaking was, wow, what a microcosm of just the overarching buffoonery that has, you know, kind of pseudo plagued that organization uh, with the just fingerprints of, you know, Mike and Paul <laughs> all over those types of, uh, all over those types of things. Like, look, some organizations are run on a, on a, you know, with a care about their players and, and, and also about the bottom line, but there's just something about, you know, that, that field turf in Cincinnati area was uh, what a uh, riverfront. Uh, and also the, yep. um, the, uh, the, uh, just, you know, just the facilities and just try, you know, wasn't really, it was, a, I guess the grass was greener when you got to the other side is what I'm, is what I'm trying to say. And, uh, you know, that's, mm-hmm. that is a great story. If you could, you know, just for us, like kind of take us through, cause you know, I, I did want to mention we are taking calls tonight. Uh, if you'd like to talk to Pete, it's uh, 646-668-8494. That's 646-668-8494. Pete, talk a little bit about then, like how the evolution of just kind of going from, you know, the NFL. You obviously had a, a, a productive career and 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 uh, and, and, and just kind of landing in Hollywood of all places for crying out loud. I mean, obviously, you know, we've seen. I was talking to Da uh, before the before the show about we were kind of ruminating about different NFL players that have gone on to, you know, obviously Jim Brown came to mind uh, that have gone on to, you know, success in, in, in that, uh, in, in Tinseltown. Talk a little bit about how, how that kind of took place and that occurred. Yeah. You know, I was, I grew up growing up on Long Island. I was, when I was uh, 16 years old, I, I, I knew I needed to uh, gain some, strength in my body. I had a, a heart-to-heart talk with my, my football coach, and he said, you have enormous potential. you got two things that I can't teach you, and that's that you, you're tall and have a big frame and that you're fast. And probably the third thing he added to that was um, you, you've got an instinct for this game or football, which is sort of code word for the, the contact doesn't, you know, you, you, you thrive on the contact of the game. That's what's, it's one of the things yeah. that's a separator. Uh, you, you can take the same skill set I had to be good at basketball, but and, and, and it, uh, but but the contact was fine. I was fine with it. I loved it. And so I started. I joined this gym in Lindbergh, Long Island, right? And it's called Rav's Gym. And I 
at that, I developed a friendship with uh, a guy that was about 10 years older than me, and he was like a big brother to me at that gym. And he was an actor in New York City, and he owned a small business, and he uh, that was kind of his day job, and he, and he was acting and doing some bit roles, and we became uh, friends. And when I fast forward five years, when I made it into the NFL, my, my buddy Perry had moved from Lindbrook to uh, Los Angeles. Um, he sold his business and he pursued his dream with the greatest passion because I'm going to make it as an actor and I don't want to be a New York actor. I want to be in Hollywood. And that's what he did. The timing was quite interesting. And he said, he goes, after you finish your sing- your season with the Bengals, what are you going to do? And back then, the uh, off-season workouts were, uh, well, you know, they're sort of non-existent now. They, they sort of uh, ebb and flow with the, uh, with the uh, according to the players, um, the, the, nego- the players association. Yeah. They, they, these things were all negotiable, right, with the, right, between the players and the owners. But back then, we, didn't ha- we could live anywhere we wanted. I didn't want to as I didn't want to live in Cincinnati and and I joined my buddy Perry in Los Angeles. He introduced me to the acting business, brought me along on and said and instilled in me a, a belief. And that's what good people do, good coaches do, good friends do. And he said you could make it. You could make it in this town as an actor. And he took me to an audition for a Ford truck commercial where they were looking for a professional wrestler type he says you got some (laughs) real tight shorts right you got a tank top and he goes we're going to go to this audition i know the casting director and my buddy perry by the way was not a small guy he was six three two twenty five he was also a personal trainer he was real fit six three two twenty five and at that time right i'm I'm six six and i'm i'm two eighty and we go to this audition, and there's about 200 guys waiting in a line to get in yeah. to read for the role of the professional wrestler in the Ford truck commercial. My buddy walks up. This is this is this is a union commercial. You have to be in the Screen Actors Guild. I'm not. I'm not even an actor. And my buddy walks up to the casting director, who we knew, and said, "This is my buddy Pete." would it be possible that he could audition? I know it's an ex- extraordinary ask, but could he audition for this commercial? And she looked at me and goes, Pete, you seem like you would be wonderful in this commercial. Perry's a great guy. Sure, you can audition. Fill out this paperwork, your height, weight, put your shoe size on this, this piece of paper. I booked a commercial. I got my <laughs> SAG card. I, do not, I, just, I jumped to the front in terms of getting a SAG card. And I was very, very lucky. And yeah. That oh, Now I'm no longer trying to get non-union work. Now my buddy says to me, you can audition for any Screen Actors Guild project in, in the world. And, and then I met an agent, and it was a small-time agent, but he, and Joe Kokowitz, and he, and he got me an audition uh, within a few months for, he goes, there's this movie, you're going to drive over to, you're going to drive over to Warner Brothers Studios and I don't know who's in it because they're keeping it secret, but it's, it looks like a pretty decent little role. So you got this, you got to go tomorrow. And here's the sides you got to read. Here's the lines you have to read from the script. I said, okay. And I drove over there and I got, and they said, uh, I read for the casting director. And then they asked me to come back and I read one more time. And then 
and uh, they put me on a camera, and nobody was saying anything. And it was a whole the whole waiting room was full of guys, six feet five up to six feet eight, and uh, big guys. And I was I was I looked like the rest. They, I was no bigger than the rest. It was a you can't even believe it blows your mind how many big guys, twenty something year old guys, are at this audition reading for the role of Swede. The script the script reads: Swede enters the Quonset hut. Six feet seven, two hundred and ninety pounds. I'm six six, two eighty five, pretty close at the time. And uh, I, I, I booked it. My agent says, "You, I don't even believe this. You just booked the. It's a Clint Eastwood movie, by the way. <laughs> I don't even. I said, "What?" He goes, "Yeah, I can't. What the heck?" And uh, he goes, "Man," and that, that was it. And then uh, two weeks later, I was in. Uh, Drove down to San Diego and we shot the movie. Um, I spent a month at Camp Pendleton in uh, San Diego, which doubled mm-hmm. as it was supposed to be Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, but it doubled. And then I and then they put us all on a plane and they flew us to Puerto Rico, and we shot. Uh, which was supposed to be Grenada. <laughs> right. It was just it was a little <laughs> island off the coast of Puerto Rico called Vieques, and yeah, they brought us there. You got to fly into. Uh, San Juan, and then you drive across the island, and, and we put us all on the bus, and then from the bus, it's about, I guess it was about an hour and a half ferry to the island of Vieques. It was, it's it's, it's um, primitively beautiful. So we were there a week, and uh, and then I was supposed to shoot a couple more scenes, but I had, you know, I had told the uh, my agent, I had indicated to the producers that I had to go to training camp. And I, I was unavailable. They wanted me for one more week of shooting, but they rearranged some things that it worked out fine. So, uh, I, but I never could have dreamed that that people would still be. They, I mean, Paul Break Ridge, you know, still runs cult classic. Yeah, it's knew? a cult classic. Yeah. Which leads me to my next question, Pete. What exactly did happen to profile in Grenada? <laughs> <laughs> He died. <laughs> he bought it, man. Profile boy. He's the only guy in the movie that dies. <laughs> Profile. Yeah. I know. It's funny. It's like, the, it was like, the, it was like this great running joke. Like, oh, man. Goes, Can you believe these guys are killing me here? And he, he was funny. He was like, I think I'm going to talk to Clint. I'm going to try to negotiate myself out of this. <laughs> yeah, you know, I've I, I, I watched the movie so many times. Before we ever started chatting, and, I, and before I ever had this radio show, I watched the movie so many times. And there's so many great lines uh, when, when the, the two, uh, two high-ranking officers uh, – Get your ass off my LZ, you know, <laughs> when, they, when they're about to leave Grenada. There's so many great lines yeah. in that movie. And uh, Clint Eastwood goes, hoorah. It's just, it's such a great movie. And, um, kills it. Uh, yeah, he yeah. kills it. Was, it's phenomenal. He kills and, it. Um, and, you know, and he directed the movie, right? So it's so impressive. That was really fun for me as a young actor, too. You know, sure. I had done a couple of TV shows, you know, um, prior to Heartbreak Ridge. So I had been on 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 movie sets and film sets just a little bit. And it was, it's quite interesting to see Clint Eastwood direct and, uh, you know, that process because he's got to do everything a director does. He talks with the cameraman. He gets the, he looks at the, the scene. Uh, he looks at the script. The, you know, he, if he's not in it, he's just a director. But he's, it looks a little weird because he's normally in his wardrobe, you know, because he's in about every scene in the movie. And, right. um, 
And there was maybe one day, maybe one or two days where he. I don't think. I don't think that's true. I'm not sure that there was a single day, maybe one day where he was directing like in street clothes because he wasn't working that day as an actor. Yeah. You know, but yeah, you know, cause you forget. He's in every he's scene. Got, <laughs> he's in every scene. But after he said, but think of it this way, right? After he says cut on that last shot of the day, long, long days. And he says, okay, cut. And all right, guys, good day. Thanks for your, thanks for all your hard work, and we'll see everybody tomorrow. See everybody who's working tomorrow. He leaves, and the set begins to break down. Everybody's putting the equipment back in the trucks. All you got to remember, he is half his day is now starting. I mean, he only finished yeah. half his day. I mean, we're got to go. He's got to go watch. Uh, he's got to go watch the dailies. What yeah. dailies? He's going to watch dailies. And he's also producing, so he's got to make production decisions about, hey, listen, one of the cameras broke. Uh, and I can tell you they broke two cameras in Puerto Rico, and I remember it was a big deal because they were like, I think they brought four, and they were down to two. Uh, and we ooh. were running some scenes with multiple cameras. You know, the action scenes were run with multiple oh, wow. cameras. And I, and I remember there was this whole conversation about what do we do and how much would it cost to fly run for Yankees. You know, you can't just go run down over to Burbank and pick up a new, you know, artifact, yeah. you know, like, and, right? So, and nobody had iPhones and, back then. <laughs> yeah, no, all, all, all of that, right? So he was, he was, I just remember, because I was pretty good friends with the first AD on that, and he was like, wow, what a, what a problem we got here trying to, we're, we all, we might run out of cameras, you know, we got to make sure we don't break anything else. So that kind of stuff, and he's in the middle of all these oh, decisions. Man. So it's quite, it's so impressive. And he, and it, Hey, shoot, Clint Eastwood's, um, he's still at it. I just saw the trailer for his movie. He's got coming out next month called mule and it looks amazing. So he's still doing I, it. Have you, um, are you still in touch with him? Have you spoken to him anytime recently or are you guys maintain a friendship? It, uh, no, it's been some years, and I, I hope to uh, – I recently met somebody that I work with that um, is my agent for my, my public speaking stuff. And when I, when I met – his name is Joel Carpenter in Austin. And when I met Joel, he, uh, he's prior military. He was an Army Ranger, and he has never, not met Clint Eastwood, but he has a relationship with people that work in his production office in Northern California. So I'm hoping to uh, do some kind of a reach out to Clint, uh, you know, when the timing's right in the near future. Uh, yeah, I, I, it's been it's been a decade, you know, since I see him. And the last time I saw Clint was in Beverly Hills at a, a chance meeting in a restaurant, and he was very. I went up and says, "Hey, uh, Mr. Eastwood, I'm I don't remember me, you know, but I'm sweet." <laughs> you know, he's like, "Yeah, of course I remember you." You know, but I just didn't want to get leave anybody caught with egg sure. on their face, you know? Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. But he was gracious and he's, 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 he's quite special. But you, you kind of remember, you kind of knew that he was going to remember you. <laughs> I kind of thought he would. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, I mean, at that point, I, when I made the film, I was 300 pounds, 240 now. Uh, this is just a, this is a normal, uh, well, somewhat as normal as you, uh, human being size, you know, a man, my size can be. You right. know, at this point, I, I don't think I I could, if, you know, I don't know if I'd be healthy if I weighed much less than 242, which is what I weigh today. But uh, but I was, uh, you know, but I played mostly in the NFL at about 275, 280. I was always fluctuating, allowed myself to fluctuate about that much. But during Heartbreak Ridge, uh, 
I, I gained weight, and I, I thought it worked for. Uh, I'm no, you know, method actor, but it, it felt like it would work if I gained a little weight. The food on the set was amazing, and, but, uh-huh. and, and honestly, I was getting a lot of strength training done because Clint arranged for full access. And in fact, we we worked out, we trained together from a handful of times, strength training. But in the in the in the weight in the strength training uh, Quonset hut setup they had there at Penn, we didn't really have much in uh, in in Puerto Rico. But we did a lot of strength training together. Sometimes uh, with Mario Van Peebles, who played Stitch Jones, who so did strength training there. Mm-hmm. And but what I wasn't doing, and this is this is on me. But I mean, it was a limited amount of time, so I didn't want to miss my strength training. But I really wasn't running as much as I should have. So I went into training camp uh, a little bit heavy. And but the heat and uh, I was strong as a bull, you know, and with the heat and everything um, that that was fine. That rectified itself in about a week and I, I was good to go. Better to come into training camp a little bit heavy and strong than yeah. under than under trained, you know, because you don't want to get pushed around because everybody absolutely fresh and really, really strong at that point. So it, it worked out fine for me. I think uh, it, it's it's interesting uh, that you didn't pull a Jim Brown and just not show up for training camp and, uh, and, and, and just go and, and, and go to the Hollywood Hills with, uh, you know, the babes and the pool and all that stuff. Uh, did you get a, uh, and that's, you know, that's, that's my own fandom coming out in me. Obviously I'm, 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 I only get to see him on uh reel to reel, uh, uh, highlight films, but it's evident, like, it was just interesting to, you know, I'm filming the dirty dozen. I'm not coming back to training camp. Go to hell. So, uh, and that, I think, I think that worked out for him. It just, you know, obviously it kind of <clears throat> rubbed the fans uh, a little bit the wrong way, but anyway, so good to see you didn't pull that. Did you get razzed, uh, coming back and just being like, Oh, you've got, gotten all big on us. Like not only big, uh, obviously physically, but it, was your head fitting through the door uh, coming back into training camp? Oh, yeah. No, that's not a problem for me. And, you know, I honestly uh, thought, so I, I honestly thought this through. Coming back to training camp, I saw no advantage to talking much at all about uh, filming Heartbreak Ridge. I, I didn't talk much about it whatsoever. I didn't see, first of all, as an actor, and especially as a young actor with a supporting role, there is an always a real likelihood that your role in the editing room could be diminished or even wiped out. And the last thing you want to do is, uh, you know, is be a, be a victim of that, where you're telling everybody you got this terrific role and you did all. Look, sweet. First of all, Swede doesn't enter the film until one hour into the movie, so it's a, it's a, it's a one hour, it's a two hour and ten minute movie, and I come in at like literally one hour and two minutes into the film. So you got to a long wait and, but then it gets fun. Right. And, and it's, it's, it's the entrance that that's powerful, but I very, well, I, I've, I got plenty of stories for you um, uh, where people have been cut completely. I got a, I got a, <laughs> I got a friend, uh, an actress friend that was in, uh, I don't even want to, was more of a friend of a friend that was in a movie to, to live and die in LA. And uh, if you ever saw that, oh, fantastic! Oh, yeah, fantastic! Right. So, yeah. So I'm not. I'm not speaking out of turn here because I'm not going to mention any names. But I work with an actor who's in the movie, one of the lead actors in the movie. And the way the script was written, and the way the entire film was shot, they shot this movie for six months. That was a long, long shoot, and they shot this movie for six months. 
and it's a 140-page script, and the, 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 there was two lead characters, and, and one of the lead characters had a wife. And if you ever saw To Live and Die in L.A., and you see the two lead characters, the two uh, police officers, neither one of them has a wife. She was, there was an, so this actress was wiped out, like erased from – and her character went from, like, page three to, like, page 120, and it was all cut out in the edit. She shot it all. And it was all cut out in the editing room. And what, what what my friend that was in the film said was so unfair was that this does happen. And that this is a little bit extraordinary when somebody loses their entire large role in a movie. But it does happen. So what normally what normally what happens is the director or one of the producers will reach out to that actor before the movie comes out, before the red carpet premiere, and say, "I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you some hard news, okay? But you you, you didn't make it, right? Your part didn't make it." Nobody did in this case with this actress, and, and my buddy was at the screening with her, and I was familiar with stories like this, so I was cool about it. Then when a the movie came out, and I believe the movie was released in uh, the first week in December, I think. 85. It was in the fall. Yeah, in 85. So, the, you know, so it was football season, right? So I'm in Kansas City, and the movie came out, and uh, I, hadn't, I was invited to the screening, but it was in L.A., and so during the football season, so I couldn't attend that. And um, so the movie came out. And I just sat there like everybody else, like, oh, I wonder how much of my – I knew the scenes I shot, but I didn't know all what was going to make it. But every single – I can proudly tell you, everything I shot is in the movie. And it felt good. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I've seen To Live and Die in L.A. Uh, at least once in its entirety. But I'm going to – I don't recall – I didn't know you at the time, uh, and I, I didn't recognize you from anything else I had ever seen you in. So now I'm going to have to really uh, look a little more carefully, and next time I see it um, – No, no. Hold it, on. I just want to be clear. I'm not in To Live and Die in L.A. I was recanting oh. the story from uh, an oh, actor okay. I'm that sorry. worked on the film. Oh, all right. Yeah, I'm sorry. So My bad. this actor had told me this story. Yeah, no, I'm glad to, I'm glad to clarify. And he had said to me – he was a veteran actor, and he says – you know, God forbid, he goes, uh, he had expressed to me like, you know, gosh, I'm always so nervous around the time my film I work on gets released because, you know, we're all subject to the whims of right. the director and, and uh, the final edit. So that was a call. I was, I was glad to learn some of these important lessons early on. Uh, and I, I was fortunate to learn many, many, many of, you know, the lessons because I had a chance pretty early on to work. Uh, at a very, very obviously a very high level with with Clint Eastwood and Burt Reynolds, and uh, you know I worked with Clint Eastwood and Burt Reynolds in the same year. Uh, right, uh, and it's kind of remarkable. Talk about zero to sixty uh, on the uh, <laughs> on the acting scale. Uh, you really, uh, yeah, I mean that's that's that story. Just, just it's amazing how that town. Like, I mean. I've been through the the gauntlet um, out there. I used to live in Southern California of going to uh, casting calls, readings, uh, being background, um, doing extra work, that kind of thing. And it's just, I mean, the the, the and, and, and I love that you respect and have an appreciation for kind of how quickly this happened, uh, and and uh, justifiably so, uh, because there's a lot of just you know great talent running around that town that you know can't. Uh, can't get a, uh, I don't even know what, what, what the phrase would be. Just can't, can't buy a basket kind of thing. And um, yeah. that's really cool that, that, that it's uh, again, I think there's that 
you know, that spiritual universe, like, you know, working, working with you. Um, so in 2014, I was just looking at your IMDb. There, there was a TV series called Enlisted. Did they revive the Swede for crying out loud? Oh, wow. Enlisted. Very, a short-lived series. I got a call. That was, that was kind of fun. It, and it was nice to be thought of. But the Enlisted was a short-lived series uh, for Fox sitcom. And it was it revolved around three guys that were in the military. It was a really sort of an odd idea for a situation comedy, I thought. But nonetheless, there was a scene at a um, I was like a like a what is it, a VFW uh, bar kind of a saloon, and uh, one guy and then and they they cast me as the bartender. And the one guy says, "Could does that bartender? He looks like." I couldn't be the sweet pending bar here. You know, that was kind of a, a line. And they, I just had a couple of lines. And uh, the casting director called and he says, listen, I mean, we might end up changing the script, but if you're available, uh, it, you know, for day, you know, and uh, would, you, would you like to shoot this? And I said, yeah, no, because it was a, it was a completely, it was a positive, uh, was, it was totally positive. So yeah. uh, I met a, a great group of guys that worked on that show, but uh, the show was not meant to. It aired, the episode aired, but the, the show was not meant to be. Yeah. Well, my uh, my next question uh, is regarding um, injuries. I know that you, uh, in reading up a little on your background, you've had, I think you you've had some sp- spinal surgery. Is that correct? Yes. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I guess probably various other. I've had a. You know, as a uh, as a, I, I mentioned to you that I'd done some powerlifting, uh, as an, and as a powerlifter, yes. I'm I'm all banged up. I mean, uh, I could the litany of injuries is you know uh, that include um, tearing my bicep tendon, which you've probably seen a torn by blown bicep before. Um, it's yeah. I tore I tore the proximal friends that yeah. suffered that. Yeah. yeah, I tore the prox the long head of the proximal tendon, and it you know the muscle balls it rolls up like a window shade like a roll up window shade and um and i you know i rehabbed it and uh fortunately my it's you know it's it's got more flex i you know i went through the process of of just diligently you know doing two a days and literally going to the weight room lifting for an hour going home eating two meals sleeping for two hours and going back to the weight room and training again just to get this thing back i mean i was do i did i did that for a year i get i gave myself two years two years to rehab that arm to get that left arm um the muscle flexibility endurance and strength of my right arm and after one year almost to the day one year my left arm with just one muscle in that bicep was stronger and had more endurance than my right arm so you can you know you can rehab you know the body does heal and if you you know if you take the time and effort to um to focus on, on rehabbing injuries and without, I did not have surgery. I didn't have the bicep surgery. And that's a whole nother, there's reasoning behind that, that I have, I don't even have time to get into that, but, um, but I want you to just explain a little bit about, you know, some things that you've been through and, and how you managed to make it through the injuries, get healthy again and proceed on with a normal life after having such a serious, you know, ailment, uh, setback, not alone, you know, let alone to play professional football. Yeah, you know, injuries and injury management is a is a big topic, and you know, sometimes I I, I think well, I I can say this w- with certainty. Any any young athlete and could use a could benefit from uh, this goes for for any field and certainly acting also, but could 
benefit from a mentor. And I didn't um, – I had to figure – when you don't have a mentor, you just, you just figure things out on your own. That's okay. That's just the way your path is laid out for you. And, and I broke my uh, wrist in college, and it wasn't with good intent sometimes – the supporting system for athletes, the medical team, although they've got, there's nothing malicious about it, but sometimes the medical decisions aren't the best. Doctors, trainers, human beings got to make decisions. And I, I, my wrist really wasn't managed. managed, Yeah. I should have had surgery, probably had surgery. Uh, First of all, it was misdiagnosed. They said, Oh, you didn't, you didn't, you didn't sprain your wrist, but they, they x-rayed it. They said, oh, you broke your wrist. But I had already been suffering for two weeks, and they, they, it was, it was, it was, I think they were trying to save some money. So they didn't – I told them my wrist was very painful. I injured it badly in a game. And they said, no, no, it looks like you sprained it. I said, well, you can tell by looking at it. And they, they didn't give me an X-ray. And I had actually oh. bothered the training staff. I think they were trying to save money. You know, it's terrible. But it's, it's, it's simply just a part of my, my history. And so uh, when I you know, I insisted on an X-ray two weeks later, they said, well, you know, it's it's, it's uh, broken wrist, it's broken bony wrist. I saw it, you can see it. And uh, that these these wrist breaks can be very very difficult, much more complex uh, joint than, than than people might might think. And uh, but that it turned out that 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 wrist injury, which they we we decided to take the conservative route, just see if we could brace it and let it heal on its own. But you know it never does heal right, and then I but I get all the way to the NFL, and then when you know it, but my, I don't know my third, fourth year in the NFL, that same wrist I, I got in a in a in a bad uh, collision, and my wrist got folded up underneath me, and two guys, two offensive linemen on the Chargers landed on top of me, so that's what about you know, 600 pounds of force, and I broke that same wrist again, and I uh, was problematic i had a, i had a surgery to repair the wrist and it failed you know um lots of fit lots of orthopedic surgeries fail so the anytime you're for anybody out there whether you're a weekend warrior or you simply had a had a an accident um these are very serious considerations and um all told i've had uh, i injured my I uh, had uh, residual damage to my lumbar spine, which I needed corrected after I got done playing football. And I had uh, my lumbar spine fused. I had my wrist fused. I had my lumbar spine fused. And these are all in hopes of um, leading to the with the objective of, of a normalcy, uh, sort of a physical and orthopedic normalcy as as I get through the rest of my life. The, 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 you know, I've got I got to I got to live to 100. I, I tell everybody that. So. Uh, I've got a lot of things to do in my life and a lot to accomplish, and I'm determined to do it. So, you know, I need another, at least another 44 years. So these are, uh, and, and but, you know, I have ultimately had, uh, and I'm feeling good these days. And, and so I've had the surgery to my two on my wrist and two on my spine. I had bone spurs removed from my, my neck uh, six years ago, which gave me some, relief but all in all when i consider all that i've uh some successful failed surgeries others successful i'm thankful to have been born when i was born and lived with the opportunity to um to sort of reclaim some of the health it's orthopedic health because my metabolic health my health in general is 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 very very good 
and it's just sort of these niggling uh, orthopedic things that I've been able to manage, um, uh, uh, not perfectly, but with the assistance of of finding the right doctors. And I, I would suggest that for anybody who's been a serious athlete for a long time, you're going to have to, you know, you're going to be faced with the same decisions. And 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 again, that's what my tra- my 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 training partner in strength training training partner at the gym every single day. You know, um, she had a serious um, automobile accident, which required her to have um, two levels of her neck. Um, she had disc replacement, and rather than a fusion, she had disc, re- disc replacement. So. And she's had a fantastic result from that. So God bless. We live in the times where people are advancing in the technology and helping us to not only live longer, but what's the sense in living longer if you're not living well? That's where the quality. You know, I'm segueing, you know, the quality of your life. And I'm, I'll just quickly segue over into this. There's a thing that I talk about when I do my corporate speaking, when I talk to my personal training clients. It's called wealth span. Right? I'm sorry, health span. Health. So what good is a lifespan without health attached to it? Um, we've, we know, we, we've seen it in our lives. We've seen very old people with a very low quality of life. And you say to yourself, you, you know, we, 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 what, what good is that? It's not good. It's not good for anybody. And, but, when you, but, but living a long time it can be a, a wonderful thing and a blessing for some people, if you've got health attached to it. So to strive for longevity without optimum health and wellness, that, that's a holistic and overarching term that I like to use, then that's, that's, that should be everyone's goal. Longevity by itself is, is, uh, has very little value to me, but a health span, a quality of life as we age, that's, that's something to strive for. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And I, I preach this, uh, you know, v- quite similar to what you've just stated. Um, you know, I was a trainer for a long time and um, I, I now te- still teach TRX classes, um, generally outside in parks in New York City. And, um, and whenever I'm working with somebody or if I even I'm just, you know, speaking the word of, of, about health and exercise and and um, uh, just overall uh, quality of life in general through exercise, I tell people, not only are you accomplishing something, uh, setting goals and, and accomplishing them, but what you, when you set these goals and you, and you push yourself and you accomplish things through exercise, you take those accomplishments out in the rest of the world and everything else you endeavor. And um, it creates co- confidence. Uh, you feel better. It's, you know, the, the brain synapses are gapped. You think you know, you're sharper. There's so many benefits to, uh, to living a healthy lifestyle. Uh, diet is a big, you know, a, a big factor. And I, tr- you know, I've, I used to structure diets for people in New York City. Um, and, uh, you know, you've got to you've got to really watch, you know, if, if you're if you're training hard, but you're eating crap, you're not going to benefit from all the work. It's almost counterproductive. Diet. And um, it, it's it's I mean, so important. It's 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 you know, there's there's three factors that to health. To, I'm, I'm sure, you know, Pete, you know, you know, rest, the training itself, rest and diet. They're all equal. They're equal components, and um, and I think I, you know, I try, I try to stress that when I speak to people about if they ever want to, you know, they're getting into getting, if they're getting involved in exercise, health, well-being, um, that they have to understand that the not only the training itself, but you've got to you've got to factor in, you know, your body's an engine, and how you fuel it is going to determine how it performs. 
So um, I would imagine I you, you probably. I agree No, I'm, I'm, I love to hear you say it, and I, I'm just sitting back and soaking it in. I love it. And for me, the uh, increasingly I find uh, the most complex and yet the most um, fascinating is the, is the eating part, is the nutrition part. Yeah, uh, we good trainers. We we know good trainers. God bless the, the the men and women out there that understand the tenets and the principles of strength training, cardiovascular training, flexibility. There's many many different tools you can use to achieve a high level of physical fitness. Pick what you want. You want to use TRX. You want to use free weights. You want to use Pilates. You want to use a machine. You want to go run in the park, jump on a bike, CrossFit. All of it, some of it, pick what you like. There's many, many ways to reach your goals that way. The food angle on here is very complex, and I can, I would, I would highlight it just this way. I, I live, I living, living in Los Angeles, working out at the gym that I do, the Gold's Gym in, in Venice, California. This, they call it the Mecca of Bodybuilding. It's an incubator. Yeah, oh, I'm well aware of it. Great, great calf equipment. Right. My buddy was there. He told me there's great calf machines there. I got to come out and use those calf machines, Pete. Some unique equipment, all these champion bodybuilders <laughs> and fitness and, and, and wonderful people and, and a lot of regular people, too. I always try to emphasize that. Lots of regular – there's, sure, there's Joes, but there's, there's the pros, but there's regular Joes, too. And one of the right. guys that I, I've had a chance to meet there, you, you've got a certain amount of the, the filmmaking uh, crowd. You've got plenty of actors. I mean, just the other day I was talking with uh, Carl Weathers. Paulo Creed, who mm. is uh, we can we can pull him into the conversation, you know, because he played with the Raiders. <laughs> right? Action Jackson, that? Action Jackson. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I've got a filmmaker buddy there. He's a documentary filmmaker, and I'll just I'll just you know tether this real quickly into the nutrition thing. And 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 it's the people that say, his name is Chris Bell, and he made a documentary 15 years ago that really moved the needle and won a bunch of awards. Chris Bell. Uh, is from uh, upstate New York, but he went to USC Film School, and he and he was always enamored uh, with with strength training and powerlifting. His brother was a professional wrestler, and his other brother was a pow- big time powerlifter. And Chris uh, loved the strength training game, but he but he was passionate about making films and telling stories, and that's why he went to film school, one of the best film school in the world. He came out and he made a, a documentary 15 or so years ago called Bigger, Stra- Bigger, Faster, Stronger. Yep. Yeah. Right? Oh, bigger, stronger, yeah. faster. I forgot which way it goes. And you can find that, I believe, on Netflix or YouTube. Yeah, we know the movie. It's yeah. a classic. You know it. So now, fast forward, Chris is still in the game. He works out at Gold's Gym all the time. I've become friends with him. And he's making, and here's where I go with the story. He decided, because he appreciates, like me, like like people that are truly interested in, in, in wellness, like him. I get the strength training thing. If I get a, if I get with a trainer, I, I know I can get stronger. I can get I can get uh, my cardiovascular endurance. I can run a mile faster, you know, if I work at it long enough. These kinds of things that are measurable to us. But the nutrition thing is really, really uh, so crazy sometimes when you think about it. It's so complex, and, and people are thinking so very, very differently. There has been a, a massive movement, and I'm probably more in tune to it here in Southern California. But I would say in the last six, eight years, the number of people that are eating vegetarian or vegan is, 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 there's a multiplier. It's, there's so, I mean, the vegan and the restaurants popping up on every corner 
Uh, it's just, wow, it's so many people are eating this way. I mean, when I was a kid, if you met somebody and, uh, they, you know, you saw them eating, but they didn't, weren't touching the chicken on their plate, you'd be like, what, what, that's the best part. And they'd be like, no, 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 I'm a vegetarian. I was like, Mom, what's a vegetarian? What in the world is that? It was a rare thing. Oh, these people don't eat meat. Now, it's like, if, oh, it's almost getting to like, if you're not a, if you're not a vegan, it's like, bro, are you, you know, come on, bro, you're a vegetarian at least, right? You know, a pescatarian, <laughs> for God's sake. So, you know, I mean, it's getting almost to that point here in, in, in L.A. And uh, I'm, I'm not kidding that much. But Chris Bell decided to make a documentary where he challenges this uh, by eating in a very – he has aligned himself with a medical doctor, MD, I don't recall his name. The documentary should be coming out. I think it's going to come out next year where he, uh, Chris Bell has been eating a – all red meat diet. All red meat. And the first question oh, I, I and I've I've seen his body make an enormous transformation. He's gotten lean, ripped, vascular. He looks he looks incredible. And I ask him the first question that I think he gets from darn near anybody, and I'm like, Chris, all red meat? Like, yeah. And and he again, he, this is a diet written and constructed, researched and and, and, and presented by an MD, yeah. medical uh-huh. doctor, and I said, Chris, do you mix in at least uh, salad? And he says, No, that's going to mess up my diet. <laughs> I, I I get it, and I, I can say this: the highest source of creatine, animal muscle protein, found in any food on Earth is in red meat. So you're getting a ton yeah. of creatine, um, and it's mo- in its natural source from its natural source. So yeah. I can see that aspect of it. Um, you have to, I, I would say, I eat a lot of red meat. I eat a lot of everything, but I eat a lot of red meat. And I would say you're going to have, that's going to toxify in your, in your system. You've got to cleanse that out. So you probably got to do a cleanse every other week or so, um, or that's going to just toxify. Uh, but I could see, you know, I mean, my diet is pretty, we're, we're going we're to get into this, Pete, at one, but we don't have time on the show, but I, do, I would love to uh, at, at another time, or, or actually, We'll book another show, and maybe we can just do a whole show on diet um, because okay. I've got so much to add to this and, and tell you, you know, I'd love to share my dietary experiences and, you know, my, what I have going on and what I'm doing, which is probably based on uh, Caveman. Caveman killed something and ate it. He didn't, he didn't bake a bread or make cookies or pasta. He picked leafy greens uh, and, and, and ate meat, and that's basically my diet. So. Uh, I also would, I'd love yeah. to see you, uh, uh, you know, kind of pick his diet apart. Cause sometimes I'm, I mean, I've got a bowl of fruit here and I've been trying to offer it to him. I don't know what he's doing. He doesn't want it. <laughs> I had three espresso. I, I had three espressos. I'm, I'm just not hungry, but, but, uh, but my diet, you know, the, the first thing that goes in and people, you know, people are fascinated by this and I've, I, I've structured diets for people here in New York city for a few years. Um, and, uh, the, it's hard to follow my diet because it's very specific and, uh, the first thing that goes into my body seven days a week, 365 days a year, whether I'm in New York, Los Angeles, or Beijing, is fish. Fish is the first thing that oh. I eat. Um, so I'm, 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 I'm sourcing you know, high omega-3 first thing. And with whatever fish I'm eating, primarily herring, salmon, whitefish, sardines, that's the first thing that goes into my body with, uh, with the citric acid and the alkaline in the citric acid, whether it's orange juice, grapefruit, pineapple, it shuttles the nutrients. It breaks down the protein and shuttles the nutrients through my, my body. So that's the first thing that I eat every single day is fish. Morning, first thing. 
Do you, what are hmm. your thoughts on that? What are your thoughts on that one? I'm going to think it's great. <laughs> I, that's, well, I, you know, I, I talk to people about nutrition all the time, and I'm a big fan of a handful of podcasts where people talk about nutrition and break it down. And I have to say, I've never heard of that before. Uh, fish, you know, that level of commitment to fish first thing in the morning. The first thing that stands out that jogs my memory a little bit, some years ago I was on a business trip in Hawaii, and I, well, the, 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 I was put up. Oh, I didn't choose it. Traditional was a, was a beautiful, uh, absolutely luxurious hotel that was uh, Japanese-owned and, and, and it was the run in a very traditional Japanese way, including you go and get your breakfast in the morning, and it's like it's literally like your experience on this resort is like you're in Japan. That, that that's that's the and the, the the it was a the breakfast that was served. You didn't really get a choice. It's like here's your Japanese breakfast, and it was fish, and it was fish and vegetables and mm-hmm. tea, and yeah. I thought. And you know what? There was an egg in there, and it was raw. That so it was a bunch of bowls filled with different fish, seaweed, a raw egg. It took me a minute to kind of you know kind of sniff around it, but I liked it, and I thought this is interesting. That I, 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 Japanese population is very healthy, very lean. And uh, I think and smart, and they're onto something. So that was my experience. I didn't stick with it. I didn't. I don't know how I could have cre- recreated that exactly, but looks like you've done it. I mean, does this draw well, from a Japanese yeah, Asian it, culture? This no, it's it's not. It's actually this is interesting. Um, I had some dietary. Uh, I I developed some food allergies at around thirty mid thirties. I started developing what one Australian doctor has uh, described, or I guess he's coined the, you know, uh, he, he's called it candida virus. Now candida, uh, there's, there's good bacteria in your small intestine, lactobacteri. And after years of bad bacteria, wheat, yeast, semolina, uh, that it, it kills that good bacteria and is replaced by the bad bacteria. Now that good bacteria creates a healthy digestive balance in your body. And once the bad bacteria takes over, your body start, stops separating liquids and solids properly, and you have all kinds of digestive issues. Now, along with that, um, I, had, I had developed lactose intolerance. Uh, my body was not producing lactase, the enzyme that breaks down lactose, milk protein. So I had to, I had to categorically eliminate things from my, my, diet, my, my life. And I really didn't know which were the ones that were causing me the issue. So I eliminated all of it. <laughs> um, so I, I eliminated all, anything gluten, uh, mushrooms, which are fungal, anything fungal or bacterial, kelp, mushrooms, uh, bread, um, anything with yeast, anything leavened with yeast, and all milk products, all milk, cheese, cream, anything that had, you know, whey, caseinate of milk isolate protein, anything that had milk involved in it, butter, um, and cleansed, cleansed my system out with a, with a cleanse that was introduced to me by... Uh, Pete, you probably remember the show World's Strongest Man Competition hosted by Bill Kazmaier. Absolutely. Do you remember that show? Loved it. Yep. Okay. Yeah, now, CBS, Bill Ka- I loved it. Yeah. Okay. Bill Kazmaier's main comp- uh, opponent every for like years was a guy named Matt Klenner. Matt Klenner was my trainer. Matt mm. Klenner taught me to squat. And mm. when, when Matt, when Matt that's, the, that's the guy who, who gave me the diet. So Matt started working oh. with me, and I was, I was training with Matt. 
And, um, and he was a world champion powerlifter. He held the silver at, at the Worlds in like 1988. And, um, and uh, so that's how, who taught me to squat. And while I was training with him, when he first started working, he said, you're sweating a lot. And I, you, I, I told him about the dietary issues. He turned me on to this, this cleanse that's not only a, a, you know, a, a, a colonic, but also has uh, health properties. And, it's, and I started making it and making it for people in New York City and selling it. And it, it, it consists of flax seeds, sunflower seeds, and almonds. So it's coffee ground, three parts flax seeds, two parts sunflower seeds, and one part almonds ground to, to a fine meal. And I started taking this five tablespoons of it first thing in the morning when I woke up with a little juice to, to break it down and swallow it. I did it for about a year and a half. I mean, when I get on something, I'm like religious about it. And, um, and I did this about a year and a half. And after that, I was pretty much right as rain. My whole system was re- realigned and corrected. And I just, you know, I, I stopped eating all those other, you know, ingesting all those other things that were giving me problems and, uh, and changed my whole lifestyle as far as eating and incorporated the fish in the morning, trying to get as much creatine. Now, as far as, you know, other foods the rest of the day, I cycle my carbs, my complex, you know, knowing what good complex carbohydrates are, you know, what good carbs are, quality carbs, um, you know, based on the glycemic index, oats, potatoes, rice, pasta on the, you know, all the way down, um, based on what my training is for that day. If I'm, if I'm squatting or deadlifting that night, I'll take in, maybe I'll eat a whole bowl of oats that morning and uh, maybe take in 200 carbs for that day. And then I'll, you know, cycle it down to 150 the next day and then maybe 75 for the last day of the week and then go off carbs for two or three days, two days. Hmm. So that's. And give your, give your body kind of a, a chance to kind of recycle, you know, without. Yeah. Well, to, 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 yep. To, to, to let it, let it, let it, you know, let it, uh, let the, 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 uh, the turn to glycogen, you know, and, uh, and then I'll, it'll build up again, and then I, I'll, you know, maybe take a day off from training. I'll have that glycogen build up, and then the next following week, where I start that big leg day, the first day of the week, I'll have that glycogen built up for energy. That's pretty much my, I'd say, my training regimen and basic, you know, schedule of diet. And- so, Pete, I hope you're writing this down. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm still pondering the, that, that uh, combination of seeds and coffee that gets ground together. And you know, tell yeah. no, 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 no coffee. It's a, that's a whole nother no thing. I am an espresso, I am an espresso addict, but, uh, that's, that's a whole oh, okay. nother, that's, that's uh, my, I'm that's my, eat. Two no, no, the, 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 the flaxseed mixture is if you have a coffee grinder, Pete, take three parts yeah. flaxseeds, two parts hulled sunflower seeds and one part unsalted almonds, grind it up to a mm. fine powder and then first thing, when you wake up before you put anything else in your body, take four or five heaping tablespoons. It's going to be hard to swallow. It's kind of like you have to train your throat to open it up and swallow it. It's kind of like swallowing sand. Um, but mm. you take a little soup, sip of juice. It'll solidify. And then just swallow it in a clump. Do it for a couple of weeks and see what happens after a few, what, what comes out of you after a couple of weeks. It'll be monumental, I promise. So, wow. Uh, yeah, so, so – this is like hearkening back to kind of, uh, and, and I'm just going to have to interject my two cents apparently, uh, to, I take diatomaceous earth about every other day, a big heaping 
uh, scoop of that, probably like a 24 equivalent of a 24 gram protein. And really what this is, is it's a food grade silica and it's used, you can, I mean, it's, it's used in a whole variety of formats, but it goes in and it's uh, the properties of the silica, the way that it's uh, uh, fashioned, it's actually mined out in Utah, uh, actually absorbs all of the uh, heavy metals and other toxins in your body. Um, it's actually used as pesticide. You can use it as a cleaner, but you know, it, it ironically enough, the food grade um, p- portion of that diatomaceous earth will actually, you know, pull out all of kind of the bad things in your gut. Um, and I was, I was having tremendous uh, issues, not, not as much as some folks, but with like eczema. And I'm telling you, I did this for like a month and all of my skin maladies like went away, all this stuff. So I'm, I'm down with the homeopathic uh, approach and, and what DA just described almost sounds kind of pseudo similar in terms of being able to just kind of, um, you know, get your pipes uh, in, in order. Uh, I don't want to belabor that. Uh, that was my advertisement for my own uh, intestinal fortitude. <laughs> Uh, but what I did want to say was what, what I heavy metal, yeah, heavy, heavy metal, metal, heavy metal. Uh, what I did want to say uh, was that uh, you, you made me chuckle earlier when you were talking about all these uh, vegetarian places popping up uh, around, you know, the country, really, it's almost like a, a huge movement vegan also. And I was laughing cause I was like thinking I was out in Kansas city and I, you know, it's almost like, uh, sacrilege you're driving and there's like three barbecue joints and then there's like two vegan <laughs> places and they don't even care they're like we're, we're just gonna you know normally that's uh, grounds for like you know you have rocks thrown through your window in the middle of the night you come in the morning <laughs> your stores burn down but uh no more no more it's and it, it's the barbecue place is next to the yoga studio is next to the uh to the vegan establishment and i th- i think that's funny and in, you know, obviously, California, it's like very forward with like a lot of different things like diet, especially and in, 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 uh, working out and so forth. And I always found it interesting. And maybe you, you could, you know, because we're going to wrap up soon. We, you've been so generous with your time tonight. Uh, but just, you know, one of the ones that I found to be quite fascinating was uh, the, the vegan um, offerings that are like nothing's cooked above like 95 degrees or something uh, where it's all right. like, you know, because obviously heat is destructive. Don't even get me started on a microwave. I uh, am patently against them uh, for so many reasons, obviously. Um, and, but, but then you kind of take it to the opposite extreme and it's like, you don't even need your food kind of he- heated to a point of, uh, to, to where it's like at a, at a, at a cork level that it's breaking down the nu- nutrients and destroying like a lot of, of what we're trying to uh, get the benefits out of our food. And I don't know if that's something that you've uh, dabbled in or seen. Yeah. You know, I'm familiar with the raw food movement and there's restaurants out here, uh, particularly in the uh, Venice, Santa Monica area where I live that will cater to the crowd that, um, whether they're, it's veg, vegetarian raw, vegan raw. So you're 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 gonna get a bowl full of, full of you know uh, basically uh, vegetables and nuts and seeds and uh, a little bit of you know organic uh, dressing on you know, to kind of flavor the whole thing. I am not convinced myself that. Uh, all that is uh, necessary right. for optimum health. Although I also don't really find anything negative about it. 
you know, those of us with a a background in bodybuilding and strength training at a high level, right? That's at a pretty high level. We've been consumed for a long time uh, about the, the focusing on the macronutrients that will lead to the changes that we're looking for, hypertrophy, strength gains. And we so we focus on the three macronutrients, and we see how it is. It's, it's, a, it's a pretty simplistic way to look at things, but it look, I, I tell people I'm a simple man. And, by the way, even though I can understand complex ideas, um, for me to – part of the, my, my talent, I think, is for me to – articulate these in a simple way so that they're ingestible to all people. When I speak to organizations and corporate folks, they don't have the the background that I've got uh, more times than not in strength training, but in, but I, but I want to make physical fitness and developing a strong, rugged, uh, durable body. I want to make these principles, you know, easy for them to understand. And the same thing when it comes to nutrition. And I think bodybuilders, to their credit, for a long time, and I I lump powerlifters in that same category, have always done a pretty good job at taking the complex ideas of nutrition and making them, uh, not only understanding them, but the proof is in the pudding. Because when you walk into any gym you can name, pick out a gym in New York City, or I defy you to go to any uh, quality gym in Los Angeles, and you find, you say, you know, just, just identify you know, a hand, five men, five women with a physique that you truly admire and respect for exactly. its strength and for its leanness and say, hey, and I challenge you to say, what, if you don't mind, can I ask you what you're eating? And more times than not, you're going to say, well, you know, what, more times these people are going to say, more times than not, they're going to say, my uh, eating strategy is focused around consuming an adequate supply of protein. And then I limit uh, the amount of dietary mm-hmm. fat to pr- sort of protect against any excess calorie consumption, which could work against the definition that I'm, I'm working to achieve. And then uh, as far as carbohydrates, I think they sort of fall into a middle place. And this is a classic bodybuilder diet. And I have yet to see that not work for anybody. Yeah, I, I, I've, I've gone off carbs completely. I mean, I've, I've tried so many different things, and you know, just playing. When I was powerlifting, um, you know, for the six years that I was powerlifting, I was just a, a big body, and I wasn't really worried about my. I was just eating everything, and we get like all you could eat ribs on Sunday, and consume like four pounds of rib meat. You know, uh, I was just eating everything inside just to get massive. And, uh, you know, as you get older and you start to, uh, you know, uh, uh, sustain injuries, it, the one thing that's good about, about, the, about if there is anything you could take good from, you know, having to change your approach is it gets you healthier. And I've had to change my, cha- my, my, my training approach, yeah. my dietary approach, and you do get healthier. As you get older, you know, you don't, you don't yeah. necessarily need that bulk anymore. You want to be healthy and look better. And um, uh, especially for radio because they, I've been told to have a great face for radio. <laughs> <laughs> but you, um, you make you make a, a great point. It's one thing, and I'm I, the example that I'm using. And it's feel free you can pick it apart a little bit because the example I'm I'm talking about is people that have no food allergies and that are you know presumably you know don't have any problems digesting any foods and, and what now, especially as you indicate when you as you age, 
uh, food allergies can creep up. People become uh, increasingly uh, lactose intolerant. And so you need to make adjustments. And it's, it's easy to say, listen, try this diet. When you're not when when you can eat anything and feel good about it, and I, I'm I see, and I'm in that category. I'm not allergic to anything. I'm not even allergic to dairy. So you just, wow. just put it in front of me. I'll eat it. And see how it works. Uh. Well, <laughs> listen, Pete. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, this is uh, I, I definitely want to talk more about that. I, I, about everything. I, I this has been a phenomenal uh, hour plus with you. And again, I, I want to reiterate what Brian said. We want to thank you so much. For uh, for you know sharing your time with us, and um, I want to do this. I'd like to, I'd like to do another show where we can really just dedicate an entire show to just just diet and training. Um, if you're okay with that, we'll talk about um, what your schedule is, and we'll try to get, get together again and uh, and schedule something because I know that that there's listeners that would are probably going to be fascinated by this and are going to want to hear more about your approach to uh, to diet and training and and just you know having us uh, listen to us hash a few things out. Um, yeah, and well, before I go, yeah. before I go, I appreciate your speaking, conversation. Speak, It'd be my pleasure. It was great, Pete. And before I go, speaking of coffee, have you been to the Better Buzz in Point Loma? <laughs> <laughs> that place no, is I awesome, haven't. man. That place is awesome. I was at the. I went. I went out. I was just real quick. I, like, he does this every show. Sorry, Anytime sorry, he finds man. out there's a there's somebody who is in a 200 square mile radius of of of, uh, of of this place. He's he's jumping their bones. That place was great, man. So I went. I went out. I went out last year. I was brought out to San Diego to sing uh, to play some shows. Uh, with the New York Mets, um, there was a documentary being done uh, on on the '69 through 1989 Mets, and they uh, they flew me out to San Diego to play some to play some uh, play some music at some of the events. So I got a chance to uh, hang out with John Stearns and uh, Lenny Randall and a bunch of players in the Mets. And I once I got off at a point out of the uh, out to Shelter Island, I needed to find some espresso, so I dragged John Stearns along with me, and I took him to Better Buzz. And I got him all jacked up on espresso. <laughs> and uh, so don't 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 hang out with DA anytime soon oh, if no, you've no, got no. A, a coffee. Uh, uh, you know, I'm I'm gonna lay down, I'm gonna lay down exactly what's gonna happen. I'm coming out. You and me got to train. I need to go to Venice Golds because my training partner trained at that Venice Golds, and he says there's amazing calf equipment there. And for some reason, he said there's just some great calf machines. And I want I saw them. He filmed them. I'm like I got to get on that calf machine. So um, I would love to we'll train with you out in uh, – yeah, man. So listen, it's still all the equipment from pumping iron, I'm sure, uh, hopefully. Uh, <laughs> if, those, if those machines could talk in those plates. We're going um, to have to uh, let Pete go, but I want to thank you so much for joining us, man. This was one of our favorite shows. I think it's uh, – you know, if, if our listeners do not know, we are uh, – not only on iHeartRadio, Amazon, Echo, Amazon, Alexa, we are, uh, we're, well, we are syndicated uh, on, for perpetuity on iTunes. So you can just go to the, uh, the Lions Radio Network archives or iTunes and hear the show tonight. I uh, want to thank Pete Koch, our guest, and we're going to schedule Pete uh, for another upcoming show real soon. And um, you stay well, Pete, and uh, stay in touch, and we'll, uh, we'll look forward to having you on again real soon. D.A. Brian, I appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thank you, Pete. Take care of yourself.